Welcome to That's Lit, the Lightbox podcast. We're a venture capital firm based in Mumbai, investing in consumer businesses in India. On this podcast, we're going to be talking about all things consumption, culture, and technology. Our idea is simple. We love to learn. Come learn with us. Together, we'll dig into new ideas, new ways of thinking, and new approaches to solving problems from industry experts across various fields. We hope you enjoy it. Okay, welcome to our next episode on That's Lit. Um, our guest today is Amrish Kenge, or AK, and um, we are going to talk to him about product, product, product. Uh, AK has been with Google for over a decade, and with a small left turn to Mintra for a couple of years in between, also adding product there. Um, he was at Google for uh, the rest of the time. Uh, at Google, he was uh, PM at Google TV. He co-founded and that product at Chromecast, and most recently has been responsible for uh, Google Pay, uh, which is probably the most ubiquitous payment platform in India today. So, welcome to the platform uh, podcast platform. Welcome to the podcast, AK. Thank you, Sid. Okay, so I I've been wanting to ask you this for a while. So let's start by asking you. What are some of your favorite product launches in the last few years, outside of your own? Oh, <laughs> I was, I'm I was so putting you on the spot. That's Lit, the Lightbox podcast where we talk about the things that make you go hmm. Uh, So I think I'll I'll get to the last few years. The one that still continues to amaze me, you know, it's like like the kid in me thinking, you know, the airplanes fly and that's a big deal. But I won't go that far back. But I think the 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 smartphones still continue to amaze me. That launch is still like I'm still getting over that shock. Uh, in in the last decade, and, and by 2010, I had thought like the story had played out, and I started working actually on TV streaming devices. Uh, but it's still like it's quite profound the kind of impact it has, and I still grapple with it. But in the last few years, the couple of things that I think are promising, and I won't go into specific brand names and stuff, but the couple of product areas that are very very interesting is. Uh, one is, you know, all these sort of, uh, you know, health tracking devices that you're seeing, you know, in, uh, with, with different companies, but specifically sleep tracking and being able to understand your sleep patterns better, you know, how much REM sleep you had, how much deep sleep you had. And, and if you get a chance, I'll, I'll tell you why I get fascinated by that. So that's been sort of a big deal. The other set of devices that is very early set in their uh, progress, but very interesting is is devices that are starting to sort of you can program to read your mind right you're able to you're you can you can start communicating without having to type with just the thoughts in your mind and and those devices i think would become more interesting you know i'm not going as far as sort of neuralink which is very invasive but that's interesting but there are devices that are not as invasive and can actually read your thoughts you can start typing and that human machine interface you know which has not evolved i think for a while there is mouse there is keyboard there is voice but could it get faster? And that that's quite fascinating for me. So I, I think I would love to kind of get a little deeper on that um, as we kind of go down. Because I, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm aware of how that would even work without being invasive. Um, yeah. Uh, that would be really interesting. What, what are some of the things that took you aback, like made you say, oh, wow, I didn't think that was going to work? Like, are there some stuff that you just underestimated um, the power of um, when they launched, but you know, positively impacted you later. I mean, some said actually are, are products that I launched or was part of. But let me first get no, out of that. Even those, but even even you go go ahead with those as well. If they if they surprised you. You know, even Chromecast, right? When we launched Chromecast, we thought we had weeks of inventory, and we sold out in hours. And we knew, like, 
you know and that's the thing with products right you built it you built it to the you know with your sweat and sometimes blood and um, uh, you want them to be successful but you're never sure and and you can never fully estimate um, how well they'll do or how badly how poorly they'll do and with chromecast we definitely surprised because we just like sold out before we could figure out and the next few weeks we were trying to get inventory so that's one which was uh, which was interesting i think the other uh, ones that have surprise i mean in some ways you know google pay you know upi has been very surprising you know uh, again yeah. you know we expected it to do well but this kind of trajectory if somebody says they had expected i think i'd be say i'd say look no i can't imagine you expecting that kind of trajectory so both of those very uh, very surprising on how well they've done and just taking going back to sort of my fascination with mobile phones but how well that ecosystem has done i think everybody predicted it will sort of be a boom create an amazing thing but nobody created this sort of fundamental thought of this kind of a fundamental shift that we'll just carry it everywhere we'll go including our bathrooms yeah. uh, you I, at least i i don't think anybody imagined in this this big way no i in fact you know uh the payment stack in india uh i think is it would be my answer to this question i'll be honest and and which mm-hmm. is why i kind of asked the question to begin with it's i i i mean we've been doing investing in this country for uh eight years nine years now and um i don't think anything has had as big an impact on um on the country as much as how payments are being able to be, get done today and when they launched it just seemed like uh, you know so much scoffing was happening about it so um i'm i'm really excited to kind of get an insider's point of view on how things kind of developed and i think we will but i I wanted to kind of start off by talking to you a little bit about Chromecast. Um, would would it be fair to say Chromecast was your first large product management assignment? Google TV would that be something similar, or do you think this was your first time like getting out in the world with this? I think look, I mean, depending on which uh, you know. in terms of my personal sort of product assignments depending on what you look at you know worked on a bunch of stuff in cisco back in the day but i think if you look at product management gigs google tv was a pretty large complicated product actually to launch um and and so that was good so a lot of, yeah a lot of my learning yeah. happened in 2010 like on google tv with working with a bunch of folks and a lot of that learning and unlearning played into chromecast So Chromecast ended up being that product where I probably had more control over things of how they were designed, how um, how they could go. So, so take us through that a little bit. So you're you're going to start this off. It, it, you co-founded it, right? Internally, yeah. and so yeah. there was nothing, and and you've come in. They want to do this. It's very different. It's very unusual. Um, you're the product. You're you're in charge uh, of the product. Um, where do you start? What did, what did you focus on first? How, how did you go about thinking through this? Yeah, so I think first place I feel like all ideas have to start with some pain somewhere. I think you know some sort of a pain point has to be there, and in this case, I think a couple of things. Right, one is that I wanted to work on something new, and so so uh, you know this idea was. somewhat uh, around uh, at google that you could build something like this but nobody had productized it in this way and i said look can i and and nobody had built hardware at this scale at least within um, within google uh, at that time and so the the way at least uh, you know i thought about it is if you look at it go back now i'm taking you back all the way to 2011 and you know smart tvs were not sort of as ubiquitous but um, you know hdmi enabled tvs were around so there was a large number of tvs which had flat screen and hdmi input but they were not smart to be able to stream things and this you know i think the streaming providers were starting to come up but they were not scaling as much because tvs were not really uh, tvs were not uh, ubiquitous which were uh, which were smart so the, so the first idea was like could you make like non smart tv smart and that's sort of okay there's a pain point that these tvs you know you can't really and people were using all kinds of things right i don't know if you if you remember s video cables you know s video yeah, cables yeah yeah i remember and then they connect to the tvs like there were all kinds of solutions around and i've used those solutions as it's very painful to do that uh, and you didn't want to do that so that that pain point said look you know can you build something fundamentally uh, better so that was one second thing was that um 
you know, could you build something that is not very expensive? Because lots, some of the other solutions that you could think of or even close to this were very expensive. You know, these devices could cost you hundreds of dollars and, and, and price points matter. Um, and sometimes things don't take off because they're very high, high price point. So the idea was, could you build something that was within a certain price point? Uh, and the third was a bit of my fascination that we should build a small device that can plug directly into the TV. And, and the thought was that could you sell it in checkout aisles? You know, could the supply chain be easier because it's a smaller device? And also, which was a real problem, that you don't have space on your entertainment center. There were so many devices, like somebody had a gaming uh, station Control, and a cable yeah. box and, and a, an audio you know, receiver and all these things. And you didn't have another... Uh, another you know space to keep a keep a box in there and the last thing that uh, we thought about is that not only did you not have space you didn't have another plug point where you were because right. you had this extension thing and you you have all of those filled up uh, the idea was you could you could just get power from the tv uh, and those are all the things that uh, that came together the beauty of i think at least for me for chromecast was that i hadn't really developed hardware before that and I didn't know as much about hardware, about the development process, how much time it could take. And that was a huge advantage. Uh, you know, not knowing something, you ask a lot of why nots, you know, like, why can't you do it this way or that way? And I think we ended up bending a lot of quote unquote rules that allowed us to move fast and, and launch this product fast. That's really interesting. And, you know, we've heard this uh, a few different times where um, the lack of experience was actually a massive advantage. Uh, can, can you give us an example of something that, you know, you guys did with Chromecast? And I assume the fact that you plug it into a USB versus having a box is one of those things that someone who understood hardware might not have done or might not have gone down that road. Are there things that you did with Chromecast that happened because of you and the team's lack of, you know, experience perhaps with, uh, with hardware? I would say everything, you know, I'll give you a few examples. <laughs> yeah, please give us a few examples. <laughs> For example, building something that small that sat behind the TV. I think the first question you would have as an intelligent person is that would Wi-Fi ever reach it? Because the TV will act like a shield and it is kind of, it is so close to sort of all this metal. And how will it even work? Like how will how will you ever work? And and this is doing video streaming. This is not like getting text. So how do you make something like that work? That's number one, right? If, if I was expert, I would probably say, look, this is a fool's errand, don't do it. Number two, right? You, uh, it's such a small device streaming video at a sort of uh, HD, UHD rate. Uh, heat is a real problem, right? You're, uh, you know, the, the, the CPU gets heated up and the CPU goes up to like 105 degrees Celsius at times, right? Uh, now, I don't know where, where it goes today. I've not been close to the Chromecast hardware. But you would think like such a small device, like why do you want to build a small device that can't, because you can't fit a heat sink in there, right? It's such a small device, the heat sinks are very large. So how, how are you going to sink heat and make it work and last it longer? That sort of another thing that if I had known better, I would not have gotten into it. The third one was just the price point at which we were trying to sell it, right? I mean, there was no other device that was at that price point in that time. And if I knew better, I would say, no, you can't get to that price point because I would have started adding up what I knew and nothing would have added up. The equations weren't adding up and initially they were not adding up for us either. Uh, same way the timelines, right? We start and, you know, this device was built in the fastest time anybody could think of the hardware being built. So over and over again, we kept asking, why can't you do a certain way? And, and the funny thing said is that when you ask this question, when you say, why not, to someone who's very smart, in that area, uh, they feel that you know something that they don't know and they think harder and solve the problem for you. And that was the most surprising thing for yeah. me that when you ask intelligent people in the industry, why not, they actually solve things that they thought they couldn't. Okay, let's, uh, let's move to Google Pay. Um, uh, and, you know, how, uh, again, I want to uh, be excited to kind of hear the origin stories there. Um, and maybe you can kind of start us off with that. You've moved back to Google for Google I Pay, did. right? Yes. So are they pitching, are they, are they sitting there pitching Google Pay to you saying, look, this is what's going on? Or, or uh, is that how, is that how you got no, enticed was, to come uh, back? You know, this, this was a, uh, you know, a, sort of very organic sort of process where um, 
you know, you know, Caesar, who's actually left Google more uh, recently, you know, he and I kept talking back and forth for probably a couple of years. And, uh, and I was very excited by overall, you know, how he approached product and how he works with people. And, uh, and of course, you know, always excited by everything that Google's doing. And then he explained to me on what, what was going on and the potential for what could happen. Um, you know, when I joined Google Pay, it was fairly small, but he could, you know, he had that vision and I could see that that vision uh, can pan out and this kind of scale can happen. And that just excited me to come back because the amount of impact I could create just seemed like uh, many folds um, more. So, so that's what prompted me to come back. What was that? So I guess when, when you thought, when you were thinking through the idea of Google Pay, what is this now? Four years ago, I would yeah, say, right? So um, I wasn't there, uh, to be clear, on Google Pay, I wasn't there at the beginning, beginning. You know, I think I was talking to Caesar <laughs> during right. that time, but not uh, at Google Pay uh, in the in the beginning. But I know sort of, I'll, I'll give you what the sort of a sense of what's going on. I, Google Pay launched in September of 2017. So it's about four years back. But I think the thought process has to start much, much before that. So um, the team that was working on this, uh, quite a phenomenal team that had started working on it at least a couple of years before it actually launched. And they were very thoughtful about it and not uh, with, uh, not rushing into it. They were also communicating with you know NPC other folks and helping build the ecosystem around it and make sure that something like UPI uh, you know played their their part in making that successful. The uh, the key that I found with this team was very mission driven, very focused on uh, making payments simple, inclusive, and then creating a lot of sort of economic opportunity around all of us. And that that I think mission driven, passionate thing where people are not thinking of anything else. They're saying, "Look, this thing we have to make big," and that was quite cool. So that's one thing that uh, that was very unique on how the team was thinking about. And uh, the other thing is they were, they were willing to. I'm sorry. At this point, the team is the team still Thais, Yeah, right? that's right. This... I mean, it was launched as yeah. as uh, as Thais, not Google Pay. You're right. Uh, the team was still still Thais. and they're uh, they're thinking about in in those times they could see that look, you know what, a large number of payments will become digital, and it can create things that you can't imagine. And so one way to look at digital payments is you could just say, look, you know what, I said I paid you some money. Uh, over a digital means. The other way to look at it is it is actually transcending time and space um, in in a way which is very interesting in the sense that I don't have to be at the same time at the same place with you. And that enables use cases that otherwise couldn't uh, couldn't happen. And the team understood that and was willing to willing to take a bet uh, on on something like that. So I think one way to look at a digital payment would be said I paying you thousand rupees. Um, and and over a digital medium, and and that's one way of sort of looking at it blandly. The other way of looking at it is that you're you know we are transcending time and space when we make that payment because me and you don't have to be at the same place at the same time when we make that digital payment, and that just enables uh, a number of use cases that otherwise weren't possible. You know something like you know I have to pay pay somebody before they show up. I I shouldn't have to visit them and make that payment. Uh, so you know all the all kinds of e-commerce use cases, uh, lots of digital purchases. All of that is possible because you know everybody has that power to make digital payments. So that's sort of become uh, and that kind of having that kind of vision. You know, early on as we we're talking about in the beginnings of Google Pay, the team had that vision and and truly believed in it, um, which is sort of what has uh, what has brought it this far. And and so you know you now come in. Uh, you're you've now been running products for uh, uh, several years, right? Whether that's at Google um, or even at Mintra uh, for three years, um, you come into this. How are you now looking at this? Uh, talk to us a little bit about um, the philosophy that you follow um, and the focus uh, on where when you're developing products where do you focus where do you, what do you think about um, after having so much experience and so many years behind you yeah I think uh, especially when you come into an established team that is doing things I think one of the biggest uh, you know 
things that is important is having the trust in the team and and respecting the team for what they've done and and that's very critical when you're trying to lead a team that is doing phenomenally well it's a rocket ship uh so so you you just want to make sure that you don't disturb things in ways that are not supposed to be disturbed in fact one dot that connects in my mind is that uh you know sometimes you say a, a good guide is uh, a good guide is one who misguides the least so the first <laughs> the first focus is on not misguiding you know suddenly don't try to change the world around you while not knowing what's happening so the first important thing is understanding it and understanding it deeply uh as you're trying to lead but i think where you pivoted your question uh in the middle there was about just thinking about my product philosophy and some of it a lot of it jibes with other people that i work with who are super super smart but a few things that i um look for is one just understanding the problem that we are trying to solve and is it really the problem any problem that you are looking at big or small what is really the problem sometimes we end up solving the wrong problems and and my classic uh story on that one is the faster horses fallacy i don't know said have you heard of the faster horses fallacy no no okay uh so then i think people say that if uh, if henry ford back and i think this is just a story that's attributed to him is that if he had gone back in the day and asked people what should he build they oh, would have said yeah, faster horses faster horses horse, right right faster horses because uh because that's what they knew they didn't know there could be an automobile that could be built and and if he had built faster horses versus an automobile you know our lives would have been different and and the point is that he understood the problem more deeply he said it's not that they want faster horses they want a faster way to travel something that is easier to maintain something that is cheaper and that's what he built so that's one very key aspect of at least my product philosophy in saying look, can can we not build faster horses and build really problems that solve the pain point the other sort of once you've done that the second part that i think a lot about is getting the basics right um and in fact i've more recently somehow this came to my mind and so more recently i've started talking to people about it is don't get into sos the shiny object syndrome so a lot of times instead of getting into and focusing on the basics like we get into hey you know what can we develop a feature that look great in a demo but it doesn't really solve the real problem so if you are doing a flying car uh you know the seats yes they're important but don't focus on the seats don't focus on the paint don't focus on how it looks it got it's got to fly if it doesn't fly there's no point so you do in every product figure out what is it what is this flying part right and make sure that part is efficient that's going to work so that's very important as you go around that then you say look what else do i add around it and very critical you know a lot of time you'll hear that PMs are not product managers but priority managers it's getting the priorities right and and getting this importance of less is more that is very critical uh, and the last thing i'd say on and there are lots and lots of things that i think about at least for this the last thing i'd say on the product philosophy is thinking about breaking the clutter you know you can build a great product but if nobody knows about it then then it's it's not helpful so you have to figure out what is your go to market strategy how would it how would people know about it will they hear it from other people or are you going to market in a certain clutter breaking uh, manner or something else that you do so that more and more people can come to know about it and get, can benefit can get benefited from what you build okay so we're going to come back to that um i i i one of the things i definitely want to talk to you about is launching launching products which is i think what you this your go to market strategy but can can you talk to us a little bit about less is more um and and how um how that was um how google pay got influenced in that manner by you know by what you were doing yeah uh, the, the I, i bring this up only because uh, as much as this is a great philosophy within google this is not an indian philosophy <laughs> um in in india more is more <laughs> less is not more and so it's really uh, you know i think uh, we're also learning um how how things are done by watching a lot of times and so i think this is something that's i think we need to learn more of um uh, just as a cultural thing yeah well i you know actually if you go far back in the indian philosophy if you really go you know or the indian way then less was more, less is more was always true that's actually true you know, yes. it's like you know if i go into hindi right sai utna dijiye jame kutum samaye is you know just thinking about you know just give me enough so that i can take care of my family 
I don't want more uh, beyond that. So there was always about sort of simplicity and less, but I, you know, again, with products, maybe we have changed. Uh, but going back to sort of the Google Pay example, the good news is that uh, I think the team generally at Google, I mean, if you look at the Google search page, that's just the sort of, you know, that just tells you that how Google thinks about things being simple. Uh, and there were search engines before that and you know how, how they were versus how Google's, Google has been always. So that's been sort of very interesting just looking at that page. But Google Pay itself always had that philosophy of being simple and I just had to carry it forward. Uh, and it's hard. Uh, you know, one way that has been epitomized in Google Pay is that our UX was from the beginning this entity-based thing. We always thought about, you know, solving the problem, right? When you try to pay someone, the first thing you're trying to do is not the amount, not how you will pay. You're saying, who am I trying to pay? Who is the most important problem? So therefore it was entity-based. And then you think about amount and then how you will pay and all of that stuff. So it, it we, we fully, fully focused on that. And that resulted in it being simple anyway. And that wasn't my invention. It was, it was already there. Uh, the key thing which was hard to do, and I think we've tried to do, is as you add more and more use cases, we added bill payments and recharges, you add merchant payments, you add spot to it. Uh, so you start adding more and more things. How do you still keep it simple and throw away certain things as you go along? Because if you keep adding, if you keep just adding, it won't work. Uh, and it's very hard. And in general, and Sid, you know this and probably heard this also, is that 20% of the features are used 80% of the time or by 80% of the people. That 80-20 rule applies so well in product. Uh, but we forget that and keep adding stuff. And when we add stuff, it actually, the product becomes worse because two things happen. One, uh, and maybe three actually. One, one is that it becomes too complicated so the user can't figure out where to focus. You know, if you do eye tracking studies, uh, you know, in your labs or something, it'd be very hard. They don't know where to focus. So they don't know what to do and therefore they're confused and they can't do anything. So by doing everything, you've done uh, you've done nothing. Second thing that happens is that the architecture itself for the product becomes complicated just technologically. And therefore, you'll find more bugs and, and it's not going to work as smoothly. It may not work as fast and stuff like that. And the third thing is when you really want to add that thing that really makes a difference, now you have a log jam because you have so many things in there that you can't easily add this new thing that would have made a huge difference to your product but you just can't add it. So in general, always ask yourself, can you do without it? And one of the key things that I think about, and a lot of time I'll push my product managers on it, on when we talk about min viable product, is I would say, look, okay, fine. This is not your min. So this is your min viable product, right? It has A, B, C, and D. Imagine you're launching tomorrow morning and D is not ready. Will you launch or will you not? And if your answer is you will launch, then D is not part of your min viable product. And you have to sort of think really hard about it and keep reducing versus continuing to keep add, adding. And a lot of times you add because you're not sure what will work. And you have to take a bet. By not taking that risk, you're taking the biggest risk. Very, yeah. I, okay, let me take this a little bit further. So let's say you say you want to add something. And then you say, you ask yourself, can I do without it? You say, no, I can't do without it. Um, and you launch, right? Um, we, you know, one of the things that you said in one of the, one of your interviews was that once you launch, you want whether it's the merchants or the end users, uh, you want to watch your users very carefully to see the use cases that they are doing to your product. Mm -hmm. um, now we've heard others say that as well. How, t can you walk us through? what you're watching for, and also perhaps a couple of examples of things that, in Google Pay's case at least, you saw users doing that you didn't realize was what you, didn't, you, didn't, you hadn't thought of, and it's become core to the experience. So first, in the first part of your question, said on how, uh, what you monitor, what you look for. Uh, in general, I think the good product managers uh, have experiments sitting inside all their products and features. So they will always sort of either have, you know, A, B, C, D, arms or A or B that they would test with because they would have done user studies, but till they see with millions of users using it, they, they wouldn't believe those user studies. So that's one that they're, you know, just looking for this or that, you know, I tried giving you 
this kind of a treatment in the UX versus that? And what are you clicking more? What are you liking more? So that is just one, just thinking about experimentation and watching that, watching different options. The second piece of it is that as you're, and these are all things that every, you know, I'm sure everybody's listening to this knows, but I'll repeat that anyway, is as you're rolling out things, you're rolling them out. You're not suddenly going and giving it to everyone. You say, look, let me give it to a one person, then let me get to two, then let me get to 10. And you have to monitor it because sometimes what work at, works at 1% doesn't really work at 10%. And there are also times when something that works at 10%, even at scale, doesn't fully work at 100%. So, so that uh, having that kind of a sort of rollout and watching for that, that is very critical. Three is having your hypothesis around, um, you know, which, uh, which features you thought, you know, how would users behave and where they'd click or what they'd use more. And having that data very clearly uh, and then tweaking and saying, look, I thought they were going to use this feature more, but they ended up using that more. Uh, and clearly, even though I'm trying to push my wear, let's give users what they want. And, and measuring uh, various aspects of it, I think that is, um, that, that is very critical as well. Now, in terms of users surprising you, I think they, um, they'd, uh, they'd, they'd surprise you all, all the time because stuff that you think will work great sometimes doesn't work great and then other things um, other things just uh, just take off uh, in in some ways I think what's um, you know we, in fact we used to have um, uh, a feature for for example proximity payments where you could be next to each other and make a payment now people use that but you know with covid everything else happened Hello? and then that's not <laughs> That's not the thing people are using because they are not next to each other. Uh, so, so, so sometimes what surprises you is also how the world changes because you can't control that. And therefore, as a product manager, you're very, very, very uh, focused on how the world around you is changing, how the user's behavior is changing. Because not only can the world change like COVID did, but also um, when you get a new cohort, new set of users, right? When you there are inflection points where the, you've gone beyond the set of initial users suddenly the new set of users may want slightly different things and maybe maybe may impacted by something else so you have to continuously keep looking at that and looking at your data and create experiments and that can then create the impact for the users so i want to just come back to something you just you mentioned um, about how to measure this um, as you look at a product and in your you're deep into either post launch or um, and whatever part of the you are on rolling rolling out a product, how what, what are your key growth metrics that you measure uh, for uh, for success? What are you what are you looking at? So these are very basic. I mean, said I think some of these are very basic, and some of these will depend on the product. So one of the sort of most critical metrics that everybody uses and and works quite well is just looking at your monthly active users and saying look okay how many how many monthly active users do you have that just i think it's a metric that has stood a test of time i'm sure you know, vcs look at that a lot uh, across the board that is something that is that is very good now then you start dissecting it and you say look it's not just about monthly how many users are coming to you weekly how many are coming to you daily because that tells you the frequency of usage and then you start cutting it by, okay, you know what, what is your ratio of daily to weekly or daily to monthly? Because that, then that starts telling you how much of your base is really like frequent users or not. So that overall sort of just gives you a very, uh, very good sense of what is happening. Now, when you go a bit further, you have to start thinking about retention. And there, uh, you know, I like, and I think other folks use that as, as well, is I like the L, what I call the L curves because there's always some drop. Yeah. So essentially what you're looking at is you're looking at weekly or monthly retention by cohorts and saying, look, people joined me on this day, people who signed up on this day, what is their, how many of them came back a month later, were still with us a month later, how many of them were with us two months later? And you can do that on a weekly and a monthly basis because if you see that changing by cohorts and say, look, earlier users were more retaining or new users are retaining more, did we change anything in the product? Is this anything changing about the environment or the users? Uh, so that's something to look at because those L curves can tell you a lot. Some other companies would look at, you know, something like a D7 retention. A lot of gaming companies would do that where you say, look, did they come back on the seventh day? 
and that tends to be an interesting metric because you know day of the week matters and therefore you say look people who joined on this day are they coming back on the seventh day um the other metric that i've seen which is also interesting for frequency is to think about in the last 28 days how many times was your product used so if it was used 10 times then that metric would say 10 uh, so that's on the sort of retention and frequency um and then as you start thinking about of course monetization you know of course you have to start looking at your you know revenue arr but also you know of course average revenue per uh, per user average revenue per active user or per user in the base so i think you can start cutting by different things but those in general uh, would cover it in the end what i tell people is that these are sort of the basic metric staples kind of thing that you could look at Uh, you know every uh, day or so but then depending on your business you would have a ton of other metrics like we would look at number of transactions a day how much money is flowing through us and you know there like tons and tons of these metrics how much you know what happened how, how much money was transacted in a day or not and you can look at tons and tons of these metrics my suggestion to people is to decide based on your business some of these metrics they become your stable and on all the other metrics create them and put some sort of an anomaly detection and saying look if it moves too much then somebody's got to look at it some alert will be fired and somebody will look at it to understand why and at least understand why maybe we have to do something about or or about it or nothing but at least you have sort of these alerts that help you uh, and as the sort of business grows you always find more and more metrics in in uh, in the context of india um i guess one of the important things to measure would just be uh whether the transaction went through or not because you're so dependent on uh the not only your own product but uh external products uh owned by um uh, traditional banks etc cetera, etc cetera as well right yep of course the I mean, uh, reliability basics i think just uh latency reliability all of those sort of are very sort of basic metric that lead to the compound metrics that i talked about for example you know look speed is a feature so looking at latency is very very uh, critical same way you know i think reliability is a feature so all of those we have to in fact those i am continuously monitoring on a you know because you don't want any of your systems to go down uh, so that's a that's a thing that should be just built into like that that goes without saying yeah So let's talk about you know and, and you touched base on this a little bit earlier with your you know um the your go to market and breaking the clutter. Um you've uh you got to launch a product, right? Um what does it take to have a successful launch? Uh you touched on it a little bit. I I thought maybe you could go a little bit deeper on this because you've now launched many products. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um what does it take to launch a product successfully? I think it it only takes one thing said ownership. But I I get into more detail that. Really I think what I've seen the best people who do it well is they feel they have such a sense of ownership about it that they are cross checking like every little thing and making sure everything is in the right place uh, because there are so many things that can break uh, in any product launch any the smallest of the product launch you take. um that uh, that ownership uh, mindset a lot of people say the product manager should have a growth mindset i said look they should have a ownership mindset everything else will um, will fall into place but you know what it takes to launch a product of course that that's a very very long list of things um you know having the ownership mindset very important uh, but in the end i think uh, a few things right and i've touched on some of these is one is uh, getting the priorities right and figuring out look first of all do you have the mvp do you have the min viable product it's very hard to it's not straightforward to say look whether you have the min viable product or not this is where judgment comes in and product management a lot of times people will say is is not a science right you always see articles that this say art of product management because a lot of judgment is involved so you have to judge whether you have the min viable product and and not too much more because sometimes you could you could add a lot of things to make sure you absolutely have the min viable product but if you add too much then that creates uh, you know less possibility of a success that's one second is making sure your basics work like if you got a flying car just make sure that flies you know the other stuff you're saying look you know what i got this basics figured out the rest of it i uh, i know that may not be perfect the seats are not the right leather but fine i'll sort of i think they're good enough 
But the stuff that is really important, the basics, you know, figuring out the basics of it, that is very critical. So figure out your MVP, figure out your basics, and then find, figure out what is your way of getting to the consumers. How will you reach the consumers? Is it that you're going to get on TV and do an advertisement or are you going to do some performance marketing or are you going to do word of mouth and references where you say, look, I'll start a product and then people will refer it and maybe you have a, you pay them for referrals or you create some other scarcity thing where we say, look, you know what, only 100 people can use this product and everybody can invite only five more people. These are all things that people have tried. You need to figure out two things. One is what would work for a product of your kind? And two, very important is what do you believe as a product manager? What do you think will work? And what do you think will you can make work? If you truly believe in that, uh, a lot of times I've seen when you believe in it, you find tweaks, you find different ways in which you make it work. But that last piece is really important. It has become more important in the last 20 years. Back in, you know, when the, you know, the app stores were just coming up, whether it's the Android Play Store or the App Store on iOS, uh, you would not have as many apps. So if you had an app, everybody would try it out and say, hey, you know, I've got a phone. What do I try? I've got this new app. Now it's impossible to break that uh, break that clutter. So you have to find new ways of doing that. For example, with Google Pay, when Google Pay launched, we had scratch cards. We didn't spend as much money on conventional marketing. And the, the, the scratch card construct was much more efficient and effective. So you have to find find that for your product. Is it, When you launched Google Pay, how did you break the clutter? What, what, what did you do? So I was, of course, like I said, I was not there at launch. But well, when the, it relaunched from Taze as well. Like when yeah, you, you know, true. yeah, yeah. So with, uh, you know, initially, of course, you know, going back to Taze, right? Um, Taze, you know, the clutter breaking thing was, you know, it was very simple design. It had sort of the scratch cards, of course, you know, the security and the fraud protection, everything else that Google brings, that all was there. So that sort of broke the initial clutter and grew it. Um, as we sort of rebranded it to um, uh, Google Pay and grew that product from there on, uh, we've done a few things, right? We've added, uh, you know, more use cases, but also one of the things that's been very successful is the sort of, uh, you know, constructs that we create on the platform. For example, when World Cup was happening last, I forget now the dates, I mean, 2019 summer or something, um, we we had a game called Taste Shots, which you know, just became very, very popular. I think six, you know, uh, it was played, I think, 600 million times, which, you know, in a matter of few weeks. So it would have been one of the sort of, one of the biggest games in sort of India ever, if you looked at the number of times it was played. We had that, or if you look at, you know, we had this construct, I don't know if you remember the Rangoli game, where we had, you could collect. collect I remember that. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. So, so you could do that. Now, if you look at December, we had this travel thing where COVID was there, but you could visit different st- cities and that that became very popular. So that's that's one way that we have sort of, uh, we have created a lot of growth. Uh, second, like I said, you know, we've added a sort of bunch of, uh, you know, features that have added to the growth and we are creating that sort of merchant consumer flywheel where you can, you know, we, we can add more merchants as well as you know, our, our competitors and partners are adding more merchants. And that created, creates more places to play and pay. And that um, that, that has been expanding uh, the network. We also redesign the app because as we realized, we said, look, this is, you know, this is this has worked so far. And now for the next game or the next level of uh, users and scale, you need to redesign it. So Because that again goes back to continuously monitoring what's working and what's not working. And even as we speak, right, I mean, I think we've got a sort of newer design coming where we'll tweak a few more things and and bring something else up there. So it's a continuous process. But yes, the, the, the growth constructs that we have done continuously, the uh, new features we've added and just uh, redesigned a bunch of things that's made a made, made a big difference and and that's that's where things are in product right there are small there are specific inflection points that make a make a big difference it's not about doing 100 things okay that's really helpful i wanted to just touch base on hiring um hiring for a product role i've always found this even with the our portfolio companies become product is a very generalized term product managers um and if you're not a product manager hiring for this role um is complicated um interviewing for this role is complicated um and understanding what 
uh, experience uh, is valuable, what experience might not be, what experience should we be looking for, um, are all uh, things that have to be learned over time, unlike, let's say, hiring uh, someone uh, in the accounts department, let's say, for example. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how you hire um, for uh, for product, what you look for, um, and and where you found very interesting places. You found very cool talent. Yeah, I mean it's a like you said, it's tricky. Hiring in general is hard because it's very hard to test um, people do in an interview um, because you know in that setting how they behave in that setting could be very different from how they behave in real life when they have to actually do things both you know you'll be positively as well as negatively surprised i have very simple things that i look for i think i mentioned i definitely try to find markers for ownership say look are you are you a real owner um and and will you sort of feel the ownership and the weight of ownership that makes the biggest difference the second piece that i look for is the ability to learn and unlearn and the way i test it i generally ask very few questions on the past how they did something in the past, because that's very, I, I find that that's interesting, but somewhat easier to describe. But when you throw new problems in them, and a lot of times I throw problems at them that I'm grappling with, and I'm considering, should I go this way or that way? And and that gives me an insight into sort of how they solve problems and how they're learning a new, suddenly a new area thrown at them. They have to get more data, or sometimes they have to even ask me questions to understand that area. And that tells you like how quickly can they get or can they ask the right questions, learn. And the way and unlearning is as critical or almost more critical because when you have these strong held beliefs that you don't want to move, uh, they can sometimes drag you down. And, and so I try to challenge people on things and say, look, what if this, what if that? And try to see that things that they truly believe or during the course of the conversation, they have said, look, I think this is the right thing to do. And you try to really challenge them and see how they how they think about that and do they see the other aspects, the other side of the coin at all. So that learning and learning is really important. The uh, uh, the last point is about passion. You know, you want to see emotion and passion because it's not, uh, this is a hard job. Uh, and I almost think of it as a way of life. You know, you everything around you starts bothering as a product manager. You say, look, why is this, why is this switch upside down? Why is this table in this place? And then you have to prioritize. But having that passion to start with is really important. Uh, so I definitely, uh, definitely look for that. So those are the, the three things that you know I'd look for. I'm looking for like continuously proof points in their past, proof points through sort of testing certain things that I can. Uh, but one thing that said I do after every interview that I do, and everybody who's interviewed with me knows this, is that I close my eyes and say, can I imagine reporting to this person? Am I inspired enough? Did they tell me things that I don't know? Are there things that I learned from them? Uh, and, and if I can say yes to that, then it's easier. Then, then that that works for me because that means, you know, you can get somebody who you can trust, who you, who, who you can uh, who you can leave alone and they can, they can create great products. Oh, that's a good one. I'm going to try that. <laughs> I want to try that. Okay, I have I have a t- time for one more last thing, and I want to bring back what you said at the very beginning of this podcast and have ended on on that note. But you're excited about the how products are going to be using uh, not your voice, not your typing skills, but your mind. What what um, what what's a product? How are they going to do that without being invasive? And, and uh, where does this go, real quick? Look, this has been, uh, it seems it's been around for a while. I mean, I have to dig it up, but I think somebody at MIT had done this helmet through which they had tweeted a few words. And this was a while back. Like, I can, you know. I remember this. I remember right? the helmet. Yeah. Now, this was a helmet. Remember, it was a helmet. It wasn't a Neuralink or anything invasive. Yeah, that's true. That's right. Yeah. I didn't really so, remember that. Yeah. So I think, so both, and, and the way my mind went to this is I, you know, I'm very, everybody who has talked to me in the last year, year and a half knows about this, but I've been very impressed by this book called Why We Sleep. And, and there he talks about how, and this sort of got me thinking about these products and the sleep products is, uh, you know, how in the last five or six years, the technology has improved so that they can actually measure what's going inside your mind. 
somewhat like what kind of signals are happening you know they talk about the sleep spindles other things that are happening inside your mind and it seems that they're able to they're able to catch some waves i'm not expert on sort of these waves in hardware but and there are products out there i think there's a product called muse i think on amazon or the other other places where you can find these products i haven't i, I need to actually i'm looking to try some of these is you know uh, and i don't again I, i don't know whether they're safe or not i think they are but uh, you should be able to sort of get these understand some of these waves you know based on the electrical signals inside your brain and that my guess is allows you to train these devices and say look when you see this kind of a wave then it means this this wave means a this wave means b and then it could get more and more complicated uh, in fact that book you know it talks it talked this why we sleep book it talked about how they could sort of train people and show them images and measure the impulse and you, i could show you image of a car image of a tree image of a diamond stuff like that and then when we were sleeping if you dream, dreamt about them i would just wake you up and say hey were you thinking about a car and and they got it right most of the time because that's sort of they were able to read those waves so it seems it's starting to get there the reason it excites me said is because both you know it's this is again a very tricky area you know all kinds of sort of Uh, ethical and other questions so i don't want to get into that but just from a pure technology and excitement perspective it's like crazy how uh, how limiting you know inputting into a computer is and how limiting it is to be able to take time to read or listen to thing or watch it versus being able to get it right away so i'm pretty excited you know you know 10 20 years from now there'll be stuff that if we are talking again i'll say look we talked about that and now it's here see now it's going to be on record that's going to be this is is this book uh by Matthew Walker is that the right book you are you're right highly recommend okay. it highly recommend it i just looked it up just want to make sure that in, in case anyone wants to read it it's the matthew walker book ak thank you so much for spending this time with us this was so valuable and honest to god uh i'm really really enjoyed hearing some of the stories it was really really great thank you very much for being here thank you sir i i i definitely enjoyed the conversation thank you